So that and the fact I couldn't get work, I'd won scholarships, but then they didn't want to employ me because their offices weren't accessible. So I'd go back to universities. So, you know, they created this monster, really. I decided, well, stuff you. I'm going to keep pushing by keep learning and keep putting out the research and try and make it valid so that we could have a good voice and a good structure within you know, our environment. We've got to stop being so impairment based in our arguments and start getting more disability rights based. But if you imagine out of the over a quarter of a million, almost half a million people with disabilities stood up and said, stop it, we count. Can you imagine the power that would have? Welcome to Generations of Change. I'm Anya Kelly Costello, a young blind journalist and advocate known for my delight in asking endless questions. I mainly grew up in the 2000s, and I vividly remember the camaraderie of being at camps with other blind kids and teens. In the real world at school, I was surrounded by sighted people. I was a good student, but I remember the shame I felt when a teacher asked me why I was sitting alone at lunch, and the frustration of having to fight to be in the jazz band just because I couldn't see. While at uni, I stumbled into a role advocating for accessibility law. Suddenly, it was my job to connect with and empower other disabled people to be part of a call for change, and I had to find the courage to build relationships with a whole lot of virtual strangers. That job would end up bringing me into community and solidarity with students, writers, academics, business people, and advocates of all ages. Disability was our shared experience, and together we would champion change. Our efforts built on decades of leadership from disabled people. But how was it growing up disabled 40 or 50 years ago, or acquiring disability as an adult? How has Aotearoa changed? How has it not? What unplanned moments would shape the lives of the visionary disabled people who dedicated themselves to making inclusion the norm? Join me for one of seven conversations where both of us get to find out. It's great to be able to talk to you today, Huhana. Uh, would you be able to just introduce yourself, tell me a bit about what you do? Sure, kia ora. My name's Huhana. As you know, people call me Dr Who sometimes, and I am a great Whovian and Star Trek fan, so it suits my sense of humour. Um, I'm from Waikato, so I'm around Pukerewa, Weraroa Marae, Ngāti Tahinga is my hapu, uh, and, but I'm also Aboriginal, Navajo and Sami. So I'm a bit of a, a mongrel really from around the, the whole world globally, as many of us are. Uh, my work, I'm very passionate about human rights and my background is in law and human rights law in particular. I also sit on the Human Rights Review Tribunal, have done for nine years. And I currently sit as a Crown Director, one of the first openly disabled people to ever sit on a Crown Directorship and I'm sitting with Housing New Zealand. A lot of work to go, but I've started. <laughs> it's amazing the work that you have started and, and you know the amount that you have been able to do. But let's just go back to the beginning then um, with you know what you have learned about your whakapapa and what happened to you at birth. Back in the early, early 60s, a long time ago, uh, my mum was only 16 when she had me. My dad was 19. And back then there was a huge shame around having babies out of wedlock. So while she breastfed me for three days, I was born a month prematurely. 
she did feed me for three days but then her brother drowned and he was only five and Nana had a breakdown so mum had to go back and care for the kids so she left me at the hospital they told her that I was dying and that it would be kinder to leave me there and they would look after me but what also happened is they changed her ethnicity on my birth certificate that changed my ethnicity and instead of going through the Ministry of Māori Affairs, they went through the Department of Social Welfare and had me adopted in a transracial adoption. So out of my culture, all of that environment, I was adopted by a couple who did not want a Māori baby. So ironically, they got one uh, through the lies and the deceit that they used to do back in the day around how they um, created these adoptions sometimes. So it was a bit of a journey, but they were told on my birth papers that I was an imbecile and an idiot. And uh, so I grew up where they believed that I was intellectually disabled and unable to negotiate life easily. The other part of that too is that I was exposed to dioxin when I was a baby because they used to spray um, dioxin over the farms in Taranaki. And so until 1965, then they made it illegal. So we had a lot of spraying, a lot of toxins coming into our system. So I was exposed to a lot of chemicals as a baby. And as a result, I grew up with a lot of um, bronchitis, lung problems, bleeding in the lungs, a lot of breathing issues. But nobody ever saw me as disabled and they never worded it as such, but they were aware of the language in the birth documents um, because dad was a social worker, so he had access to it. So they knew uh, what was said about me, but they just tried to give me a normal life by not mentioning disability at all. I mean, they did the best they could with what they knew and with the, what they had in their own life. But for me, I never, ever felt a true belonging. And I never understood why. Absolutely. And when do you think you started to be aware of, just going back to when you were growing up, that your parents had, you know, those, those low expectations of you? It wasn't until I hit my, I guess, my 20s and that, that I started to understand a little bit of what was going on. And it was my mum's cousin, who was a music teacher, said to me, did you know that we actually nominated you to train under Dame Mary Leo? but you got second, not first. And I said, I was never told. And, you know, I felt very hurt. They never expected that I could do it. So my family refused to allow me to take up the scholarship because the other girl didn't take it up. And I could have had the opportunity to do something I always dreamt of, and that was opera. But I could have trained under Dame Mary Leo and actually had an opportunity, which missed. And, and I felt sad. But then I came to realise that sometimes our journeys just aren't the journey we're meant to be on. You can't grieve over that because it's happened. You have to look for other ways to fulfill that journey. And so Absolutely, yeah. That must have been a very, a very challenging process at the time though, yeah. to, to come to terms with that. So I left school at 15. They kind of thought I would get married, have kids and kind of manage life. And I was angry. I was angry because at 14 I'd been raped and I had to go to court. And the guy got seven years jail, which was almost unheard of back in the day. But I saw his file there too. And I saw what they did to rehabilitate him and help him. And I got none of that after, you know. So it was pre-Women's Refuge, pre-Rape Crisis Centre days. What do you think helped you in that healing process? Probably my sons, uh, my oldest and my youngest. My oldest son was a forced adoption, so I never got to see him 
until many years later and now I have a wonderful relationship with him. My youngest son, I nearly died having him, but he was part of my healing. I had to grow up. I liked partying, I liked drugs, I liked alcohol. I liked living my life and destroying my life. And when he was two, I suddenly realised that I needed to either grow up or I needed to be very real about not raising my son because I had a child that depended on me. He was disabled and he needed his mum. So I grew up and uh, it was him. And then over that time, I went in and got counselling and started doing some healing. And it took a good number of years, but one day I realised that if you keep thinking like a victim, you stay like a victim. What was sort of the more, um, I guess, holistic or positive way that you were able to think about yourself? Affirmations, which I absolutely hated doing, because one thing I don't do is look in the mirror. I don't have a great body image of myself, so I tend to not look in mirrors, but I did it back then. And I used to look in it every day and force myself to do it. And I'd say things like, I love me. And then I'd go, oh, God, what a load of rubbish. I hate myself. You know, and I, I really did. I contradicted myself multiple times. But over time, it got easier. And then, you know, you start to realize that if you don't love yourself, you can't love someone else. And how was I going to love my son if I couldn't love me? But also, I put myself into violent relationships as well. And I realized through the therapy that I was actually hurting myself in other ways. And one way I did that as well was through food. I know it's hard to imagine now because I'm quite a big girl. But when I was younger, I used food and controlling food as a way of coping. And so I was anorexic uh, for a long time because I would use it. If I wanted to hurt myself, I'd stop eating. So if I wanted to punish myself by punish and punish my parents in a way, which was silly, I would do it by not eating. And then I'd lose a massive amount of weight, get very sick, and then I would justify it. Oh yes, I deserve that. So it's about recognizing the triggers and then attending to them at the time rather than letting it go. Absolutely. When you were sort of having to come to terms with all of that, what was it that started to make it possible for you to think about disability in a way that would allow you to th not not have it be such a negative thing well there was a lot of I had a lot of fatigue but I was also a marathon runner a tramper a climber but I fatigued a lot my lungs always played up and as soon as I got, got a diagnosis of things like asthma and slowly diagnosis would come and realize this has been a lifelong journey but there was never a label for it Every time I'd say it, my adoptive family would go, oh, don't be a hypochondriac, you know, all of that stuff. So you tried to hide it. Um, you don't want to be seen. And when I needed to start using a walking stick, they would um, hassle me for it. And then it was when I started to say, no, I need it, that it was when I started to accept that I needed to have um, support. And it wasn't until I went to university in 1993 uh, that I started to really um, reach out on that support. So yeah, there was such a strong stigma around mm. that then. The other thing around my generation is many disabled people were still in institutional care. So a lot of disabled were hidden away. They weren't in the community. And if they were, people just stared because that was so rare. I had a cousin that was mildly intellectually disabled, but no one ever labelled it because um, nobody liked the labels. I mean, my adoptive mum, um, had severe depression, but we never knew because they would say she was in hospital for uh, her back or something. Nobody told us kids. We never visited her 
in the psych ward or anything because everyone had it. When the Human Rights Act was passed, like, do you do you remember that feeling like quite a big thing? Was that was that near the beginning of uni? For me, it was poignant. In that six months earlier, I got kicked out of nursing studies because of disability, but I also got harassed because I'm I'm gay. I'm a lesbian, and um, my ex high school ones that were in the same classes as me were making false accusations and harassing me, and uh, I had no protection. And then I go to university, and that was the same year that the Human Rights Act came in, and suddenly there was all this protection. And I found that the student groups when were getting that knowledge, because it was so new, we were being informed of it. And it was quite, for me it was life-changing. I suddenly discovered this thing called the United Nations, and a human rights aspect and what that meant. So would you say that you ended up getting into disability advocacy somewhat out of necessity when you started uni? I did it all out of necessity. If, if in law there was nothing around human rights and disability, I would do it. And then my PhD focused on law and tikanga Māori, um, but it was from the perspective of being disabled Māori. And there was absolutely nothing back then. There was one paper, I think, one report on Māori disabled done by the Don Beasley Institute, but it was so inadequate that I felt it had to go further. So that and the fact I couldn't get work, I'd won scholarships, but then they didn't want to employ me because their offices weren't accessible. So I'd go back to university. So, you know, they created this monster, really, because they wouldn't give me work. If they'd given me work in public service, I'd probably be quite happily earning good money and uh, be kept silent. But because they didn't, I decided, well, stuff you. I'm going to keep pushing by keep learning and keep putting out the, the research and try and make it valid so that we could have a good voice and a good structure within you know, our environment. You know, now we've got the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and everything is that it, it all sounds kind of very good in theory. Um, and when the rubber hits the road in practice, how do you, how do you envision long-term change, I guess, in the human rights space. I believe we have to have a tooth-driven piece of legislation that is enforceable at government level, local level, and across the country. Uh, we do not have that right now, and that's why so many people get away with so much abuse, is simply because our Act does not have teeth. For disabled people, I do not believe that it is good enough to just say that we should be voluntarily compliant. We must have mandatory rights. You cannot protect a group of people if we do not have that protection in place, particularly one of the most vulnerable. We do not get choice like the rest of the society does. This whole dream of choice is just a dream for many disabled. We don't have choice of housing. We don't have choice in education. We don't have choice in jobs. We don't have choices of where we live. We don't have the same level of choice as other citizens. And how do you believe that we can make sure Indigenous people um, are really considered within those networks and that they um, feel really, I guess, valued within that framework where particularly considering that um, the law and the current justice system has not always been friendly to, to Māori and, and other groups. Well, I think we need to be looking at that whole issue of the te reti o Waitangi. 
it goes beyond just partnership. We shouldn't just be talking about it. What is partnership? It means you stand alongside. So we should actually have a indigenous parliament, to be honest, that sits alongside the mainstream parliament and oversees the iwi hapu whanau, uh, lives, rules, education, regulations. We don't have that. I don't believe that jail works for anybody, whether you're Māori or not. I've worked with a lot of disabled clients in prisons and got a lot of them out of jail. It does not work. Rehabilitation is about someone makes a mistake and most of it starts off by making a mistake or being silly. I was a stupid teenager, many of us are, you know, but what we do is we tend to punish certain ones at that age and then they go down a road in a spiral that's very bad for them and for society. We should be following the Norwegian models of prison system because it is rehabilitative. They treat them like human beings, not like animals. Mm. Most people, you can get out with the right supports and get them on track in life. And I've seen that. And thinking thinking sort of longitudinally, I guess, back over 30 something years <laughs> that you've been advocating and doing this, can you think about what what aspects have changed for the better? We are seeing more disabled going into education, which is great. It's not perfect for many of them, but we are seeing more getting educated. And that's exciting because as you get educated, you become informed. I remember when I started out in, in academia and as a Māori, you'd be told, ah, you're one of those educated Māori, eh? And you'd get hassled and harassed for that. And it's the same in the disability community. We don't really value education. Education is freedom. It will, well, I don't know in my case, but it will free uh, a lot of people from poverty because as you educate, you start to challenge systems. You start to break, you know, away from the status quo. You know, there's nothing better for controlling a community than keeping them uneducated in their rights. And really, in the 80s for Māori, it was when the land rights movement started coming out, when young, educated Māori were going out there saying, hang on a minute. I know that we have rights. This is how that law came and it was wrong. And when they started the land rights movement, it hasn't gone backwards. We've got Māori now. We've got some major issues we have to address, but we've got Māori now that are more educated, that are sitting in as lawyers, as educators, as, um, as policy makers, as a whole range of areas. We need that for disabled as well. We need to have disabled out there. When I taught in law, I had students tell me, oh, blind people can't practice law. And I said, why not? Oh, they can't read the law books. And, and you know, it, it was so ridiculous because there's actually more blind lawyers than there are of any other disability group in New Zealand. But that's the thinking that's still out there. We've got to stop being so impairment based in our arguments and start getting more disability rights based. When we were focused on disability rights, we had stronger voices. Those voices have weakened because we've all gone out into our little silos. Oh, what about the rights of, you know, autistics? What about the rights of the blind, the deaf? You know, what about the rights of those who are physically or intellectually disabled? Every one of those is valid. But if we keep breaking ourselves down, we don't get anywhere. When we do it collectively, you imagine what it's like. The foreshore and seabed is an example. 20,000 people marched on Parliament that day and Helen Clark said everything she could against them but we stood in solidarity. If you imagine out of the over a quarter of a million, almost half a million people with disabilities stood up and said stop it, we count, can you imagine the power that would have? 
I suppose social media has, has quite an important role in mm. terms of both being able to get a voice out there, um, but also, also making it feel like you're on all the time. That's hard. I, I've been addicted myself to social media. I've had to learn not to react to a lot of neg negative messages and when something controversial comes out that I'm involved in, I've had to learn not to respond immediately. What I want to know is um, what's happening in our community. We need to look at the positive sides of social media and really teach young people how to use it to the advantage and not how to use it as your therapist because it's not. It's about finding a balance where you've got a healthy relationship with your social media, a healthy relationship with real people that can keep you balanced in that role. And you can do your advocacy, but also remember that it's going out to the world, not just to your friends. You don't let social media be, you know, be your boss. You get to be in charge of it. How would you encourage you know, people like me who are younger and have maybe haven't had a lot of other disabled friends to form that community or want to be part of that community and find a, a voice in that space when there's, you know, there's always so many things, um, so many non-disability related things we can do as well. And It's about mixing ourselves and we do need to get out of our comfort zone sometimes. I do believe that my generation has a duty or an obligation to uffy through our younger generation into that leadership and to have that sense of, you know, we're not going to be around forever. But I didn't get mentored by the older people very often. That was They were more keeping the voice because there were so few voices out there. Anyone that needs it or wants it, my voice is there for them anytime they need. Um, but I don't try and take over their voice. I want them to find their own voice because the young people challenge us, you know, and I like that. I always remember the old people say, in my day, well, in my day, <laughs> you know, and this is, and, and it's true because in my day it was different and it's going to keep being different. And if your voice isn't in there, if you guys aren't going to university, if you aren't seeing your potential, if we're not giving young people that hope around education and work and finding your voice within your community, then we are only perpetuating the same silos that we've been having our entire lives and that has to stop. Mm. If you could think back to your 20 year old or thereabouts <laughs> self and mm. if you had any advice for her, what would that be? Give up the drugs a bit earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and the alcohol <laughs> and the sex <laughs> oh give it up <laughs> well not give it up just just kind of grow up a bit earlier <laughs> be a bit more responsible I was not responsible at 20 <laughs> you do get wiser with old age I can tell you but I'm still 18 in my mind <laughs>